your policies towards working in the office are going to impact your space needs. And uh, so if you want everybody in the office Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you need an office for everybody on those days. So you're not going to have fewer offices. If your strategy is to provide space for people when they need it uh, and that they come in when they need it, uh, you're probably going to have less people in the office. You probably can move to a hoteling situation, uh, at least in, in a partial way, which can have a huge impact on your space needs. Welcome to Deals and Developments, a real estate podcast from the Dykema Law Firm. I'm your host, Bob Linton, Director of Dykema's Real Estate and Environmental Department. For more episodes, you can find us at dykemapodcast.com, youtube.com slash Law, or by searching Deals and Developments, wherever you get your podcasts. On today's episode, we will be discussing the latest issues and trends we are seeing in office leasing by looking at our own firm's decision-making regarding office space. And joining me today is Dykema's Chief Operating Officer, Paul Boken. Welcome, Paul. Nice to have you. Well, Bob, nice to be here. Well, let's... Um, so so in your role, you uh, are responsible for overseeing um, all of our facilities, uh, offices in our various cities that we're located in, office renewals, expansions, relocations, contractions, whatever it, that may be, Right. Right. So it's anything related to leasing and uh, that I'm involved in and construction. Yeah. Right. And then so if, after, for the most part, the office administrators would handle the day-to-day activity. Fantastic. Okay. So um, t- that's helpful. And just why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more? Tell, tell us about your role at the firm generally. Sure. As a chief operating officer, I'm, I'm re- responsible for anything that's non-legal. Uh, uh, report to the CEO and also to the board. Uh, and then I have a team of people working underneath me. In real estate, it's mostly me working with outsiders, whether that be brokers or project managers and construction managers if we're doing uh, some construction work. Uh, we get them to help out a bit. So, Paul, I, I know that you also um, work with people in my group, including myself. Uh, you know, We support on the negotiation of the leases or the lease amendment. So, we, we, so the listeners know, we, you and I and my team have worked hand in hand on one aspect of this, the documentation negotiation leases. Um, right. Can you give us a general overview of the Dykema offices generally, the locations or you know, sizes? Or sure. We, we've got four, 14 offices. And it, actually, the uniqueness of Dykema is that as a, a law firm of about 375 lawyers, most law firms like that have one large office and then a series of smaller offices. The, the, the uniqueness is that we have a number of offices, four offices that are almost the same size. Uh, and so that, that, that provides some advantages and maybe some disadvantages from a real estate standpoint. You know, if you're in, in a single building with, let's say, 200 of your lawyers, uh, maybe gives you give you a little extra uh, negotiating power, maybe a little more efficiency that you might gain uh, from that. And we, we don't have that situation, but I, but I think it's a strength of the firm that we, uh, you know, have 70 to, to 80 lawyers in, you know, four, five different locations. And then in addition to that, we have some smaller offices of uh, 15 to 25 lawyers. That, that, that's a good point. It, and I've seen it from the, you know, the management and practice sides of that, uh, that it's nice to have um, several offices in several states where the people feel like they're not secondary to the mothership. And, you know, they're, they're for example, you mentioned the board you report to and the CEO, they're, they're scattered all around the country. Um, you've got representatives right. in 
LA and Texas and Chicago and throughout Michigan. So um, that 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 paints a good picture for for the you know the setup of the office space. So let let's talk about the process. Um, what what goes into your decision to uh, acquire new office space or, or change your office space, whether it's the location or the size? Yeah, you know, a couple of things uh, for starters. First of all, you need at least 18 months in advance of a termination of a current lease to, uh, to start working on the process. There's a lot of things that you need to do in some instances, especially in a bigger office size, uh, where you have more square footage, you, you probably ought to give yourself 24 months, but you certainly need at least 18 months. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is to give you time to plan. And if you do need to construct, to construct. Uh, the other side of it is the, it's, there's a question about the market. You know, is there a space big enough to handle you? So if you're a 150,000 square foot tenant, you got to find spaces in your uh, location that can handle 150,000 square feet. And you know, the building's going to need more lead time uh, for that type of thing. So, uh, so I always start trying to start at least 18 months in advance. Uh, and then the other thing you want to be doing is is uh, just taking a look at your current space. You know, what does it do for you? and What does it not do for you? So, in in recent years, many office tenants Nothing. and law firms included have found that they have more space than they need. So <laughs> you take a look at that. Uh, you know, how many uh, vacant offices do you have? Uh, and also uh, try and get a sense for growth. Now, the other error many law firms have made over the years is they've had too much space. They plan for growth that doesn't occur. And as a general rule, in my years of doing this, which is now 25 years, I rarely plan for meaning for significant growth because you just don't know if it's going to play out. You can do things and we can talk later about what you might do to reserve space for you in the future if you might uh, you think you might need it. But the, the biggest mistake I think most people make uh, is is taking too much space. Right. And, and, and uh, um, if, if, you, if you don't do that and you do have unexpected growth, you can usually figure it out. But but there are those yeah. those options you can get sometimes for Rofos Rofers expansion options, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Right. That they now the interesting thing about it, you can get them. I don't think I've ever had them a, a Rofo, for example, come do or become available at the same moment that I need yeah. the space. The right of that's so, just so the listeners know. Right, Rofo is a right of first offer. Rofer right of first refusal. The difference is essentially. The trigger, if it's a row foe, the, once they're ready to lease the space and it's available, they'll call Paul and say, do you want this space? Um, and uh, the, the funny thing is, I think most landlords are going to call existing tenants that are adjacent to the space, whether they have the row foe or not, because they're the most likely yeah. you know market to take that space. A row fur is better for the tenant. It gives you uh, uh, an option to steal the deal. Be, you know, they, Once they get a third party interested in the suite next to yours, they, they say, hold on, we got to go ask Dykema if they want to take this space. But you're right, it, you have no control over the timing. The, the third option, which is most hard to get, but to your point earlier about if you're a 200,000 square foot tenant, a lot of leverage, you're the, one of the anchor tenants or the anchor tenant in the building, you can get it, is a, a true expansion option. And you could say, you know, between the fourth and fifth year, we can expand into this space. And the landlords hate to give that because they have to basically either keep it empty or lease it, but make sure the lease ends after, you know, the four years. Right, right. Kind of complicated for them, but, uh, and it depends on the market. You know, if, if, if that space has been sitting available for a long time, they might be more willing to do it than if it's a building that's, that's in high demand. So uh, hard, hard to, to and, get and that. And it's probably worth uh, noting real quick, you know, you, the market always impacts all of this. And we're sitting now in an unprecedented time 
with, with a glut of office space, primary space and subless space in central business districts in particular is an outcome of the pandemic, which led to the work from home model. We can talk about that, but did you have anything else you wanted to, I didn't want to cut you off. Well, a couple other things, you know, another area where people, especially now may have more space than they need is in the conference area. You may have built out for a very active conference room facility, and you don't necessarily need that anymore uh, because of all the use of Teams and, and other tools. So that may be an area where you can cut down. The uh, Another thing to consider is considering building out space that will potentially draw people in. We Many of us have policies where we want people to be in a certain number of days a, a week. Not everybody is follows, following that advice. Uh, and uh, But we've been looking at and building out space that is attractive to people where it's not only a lunchroom, but it's also a gathering space. And people may choose to go work in, informally in this area uh, or, or get together with some people in that area to talk through issues, cases, whatever, or have lunch in there. So, you know, that it, it making it a little bit more attractive hopefully will draw people in. And we, we've been doing that in a couple of build-outs that we've done recently. It's interesting. And, and, and I see an analogy or have seen one over the last five to 10 years in buildings, the land. So, so you're talking about the, the, the tenant trying to draw in their employees and how you build out the space and um, making it attractive. For example, in one location, I know we have a terrace, an outdoor terrace. And I, I know the new buildings, more and more of them have that. And they do very well here in Chicago, the ones I've seen, for example, in the Fulton Market District, stuff like that. Um, but landlords have, there's been a trend that I've seen, landlords have created amenities in their buildings to attract tenants because it's become more competitive. So it's, it's more of a tenant's market. And I think the tenants and their employees value that more. I, I I think, you know, more and more buildings have gyms in it. This building that we're in in Chicago, when I came here 15 years, did not have a gym in it. And it has had one for some time now, um, you know, a, a coffee shop, a Starbucks or what have you in the lobby, shared space. There, there, there's, there's, a, there's a lounge, a community, uh, you, you know, we're co- common for all the tenants that, you know, for uh-huh. play games, stuff like that. Right. And, and, you know, the workforce, I think more and more we have the, the, the younger people, the people, the generations before us, right? Uh, millennials, so to speak, in the generation after that. And I, I think they value that more and more and are more in tune to those things. Don't you agree? I agree. And, you know, one of the things that are valuable about those types of spaces is they may provide a large conference room. And so for for the one reason of drawing people in, you know, I know they have uh, drinks uh, in the space in our building in Chicago on Thursday afternoon or evenings, uh, for example. But if you don't have to build a conference room to handle 20 people right. because you know you can reserve it downstairs, that's a valuable amenity to have. And they do have that in yeah. our building. Yeah. And then you don't have to have so much conference room space, as you said, because it is rare, especially the smaller kind of people like breakout rooms, but those can even be on the floor where the workers work, um, as opposed to like a, a lot of firms, law firms that I work at, been to, um, have a separate conference floor with reception. Um, uh, you know, one other thing to add, Bob, is that your your policies towards working in the office are going to impact your space needs. And uh, so if you want everybody in the office Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you need an office for everybody on those days. So you're not going to have fewer offices. If your strategy is to provide space for people when they need it uh, and that they come in when they need it, uh, you're probably going to have less people in the office. You probably can move to a hoteling situation. Right. 
uh, at least in, in a partial way, which can have a huge impact on your space that's needs. A, that's a really good point because the hoteling is the efficiency. Okay, people are using less, so we can rent less and save money, uh, but not if we want to have what we call dicoma days, right? For for example, three three days a week. Like if you're going to work from home, please do it on Monday or and or Friday. And Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are dicoma days where we can all be together. We can have um, you know personal relationships, collaborate on work, um, in person training, that type of stuff. So we're not missing right. each other. Yeah. So you're, you're not seeing your 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 two two people on the same team are coming in three days a week each, but they're only seeing them each other one day a week. That that's no good. So um, I I think that that's what we're doing, and that's the right model. But it does mean that we can't do the hoteling and have those efficiencies. Another right. move that has been, you know, chronicled a lot in, in, in the media over the past several years that law firms, some law firms have done for more efficiency is, is the single sized office space. Why don't you talk about that a little? Yeah, no, we, and we call them universal offices, meaning they're all the same size. And then that same size, uh, as I, I let people know, is an associate office size. So, some people think, oh, great, I'll have a partner size office. Well, it's, it's a, the concept is to, to take less space with your offices. Now, a couple of things you have to consider with that is if, if you did move to a single size office, your, your current furniture probably doesn't fit in there. So you are committing to some additional expense and you would need to get some furniture that's specifically designed for that smaller office, uh, which can add to the cost. But at the same time, it, it's a really nice amenity that the new furniture today uh, can be a stand up and sit down yeah. desk. So the, generally the whole desk goes up and, and goes down. And uh, so it make, allows you to have all your papers around you when you're standing up and working standing up, which a lot of people like to do these days. So uh, it, it's something to consider now. That, so by doing a universal office size, you take less space. So it's valuable from that standpoint. If you also want to do what I talked about earlier and have this gathering space, it gives you the ability to do that while still uh, either taking less space or taking the same amount of space. So it can it can add a, a, an additional value. And what you're giving back to the people that are coming to that space is uh, is a place to go to to uh, have lunch, to meet people, to bring uh, outsiders in to meet with you. And you're giving up a little bit of office size. That that, that office that maybe has a table in there that you use uh, you know every uh, couple of months. Don't have that anymore in the universal office size, uh, but uh, but you do get gain other yeah, things. Yeah, in some floor plans have like breakout rooms that are just you know ten steps down the hall for for that one time every couple of months. You want to get together, work side by side with someone. You don't have room at your desk. Right. I agree. Right. The, the 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 table in the office just files up, or it's either the place people have lunch or just has files on it. Right. Um, right. All right. Let, let let's get back kind of to the process, and why don't you talk a little bit about um, the, the role that uh, architects play and brokers play and how you use them. Yeah, you know, the, the brokers have access to the entire market and uh, you really do need to have a broker. You don't want to be approaching a building and nor your landlord without the broker. You might think you're going to get a discount because there's a commission that's paid to the broker, but you never know. You never know for sure if you got that discount. And uh, the broker, because they have access to the entire market that, and, and also knowledge of what's happening in the market, they're going to help you get the, the best price. So it's important to have your broker. Now, uh, you know, you, you may have one you work with already that you trust. Uh, if not, I would interview, but I would always interview three or more people to, to make sure you're getting a broad look at the, the broker market 
and you wanted to uh, hire someone who really has your interests in mind, they, they listen to you, know what you want and need, and are willing to to go to the market and, and seek that out. So that's the, the, the first thing to get. Uh, the second thing is an architect. And uh, as you're going out and looking at space, buildings generally uh, will pay for a test fit. And uh, the architect will do that for you. And the building sometimes wants to do your test fit for you, but one that they don't have the interest of your your own interest in mind. So uh, you're, you may not get what you want exactly. And the second thing is once you've been working with an architect and they know what your needs are, they can take those needs and try and fit them into the various buildings that you're looking at, as opposed to talking to the architect for each building to try and get what you want. So uh, to, again, it's generally a no cost item for you, unless you want to do a lot more work with the architect. Um, to have them do the test fits because as I said, the building does pay the architect for that. And for the process of of um you using the broker, and I totally agree with you. I you know, I I I think it's fine if someone wants to try to buy or sell a house without a broker and save the commission as long as they have a good sense of what the market is fine. But when you're talking commercial office space and it, it you're you, I think you're 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 being penny wise and pound foolish if you try to do do it without a broker. You're more likely to get burned, yeah. and, and it, it, they're also going to negotiate all the things we talk—the bells and whistles, the, the options, the rofers, the rofos, and, and or termination right. options, and and so forth. And so, I agree with you 100 percent on that. So, I guess that's our our plug for all our broker friends that are listening. Um, uh-huh. So, so um, I know the recent. Let's talk about uh, recently. Um, we made a decision in, in one of our. Um, offices to not renew with the existing landlord and find new space. And ultimately we, we, we found space in a building that hasn't been built. Um, so that's an interesting path. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, the reason that made financial sense? And obviously you're getting, you know, a new shiny building, which is cool, but you, you I know we don't make decisions just based on that. It's got to, you got to justify it economically or financially. Yeah. Well, that scenario is a, a suburban location where we've been for a long time, uh, almost 30 years now. Uh, the space itself is suburban type space, which generally is a very large floor plan, uh, 60,000 square feet, whereas your typical office building might be 25 to 30,000 square feet of space. So it doesn't build out really well for the modern law firm. Um, and uh, uh, so, but we did look at potentially, uh, you know, staying there. That's always an option. Staying is an option. Um, and then we looked at other uh, buildings in the marketplace. Many of the buildings in that market, suburban locations, had the same type of floor plan. Not necessarily the exact same size floor plan, but a very large uh, floor plate. Uh, but we did find uh, a, uh, a landlord who has a floor plate that's, that's uh, the size that we would want. We were able to, uh, using universal office design, it was just about finalized with the, the floor plan. And... Um, uh, we're taking significantly less space. So we're paying more because it's it's new construction, but we're taking about half the space. In the end, the cost ends up relatively close to uh, where it would have been if we would have renewed in, in the existing building. Um, because there's a couple other advantages in suburban space, you have to uh, generally have to drive to go to lunch, for example. This is going to be uh, in a, uh, a town in, in uh, Michigan and it's a walk to lunch. Uh, so it, it adds some amenities that you just wouldn't have in some of the suburban space that's uh, that's available. Yeah, I, 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 so but, I think as uh, as a manager of practice group uh, or a department, I, I I'm always focused on 
you know, recruiting and retention, whether it's recruiting new attorneys or lateral attorneys or just retaining the, the associates that you're training. And, you know, th there's a half a dozen ways you can make them like working at Dykema, but one of them is having great space and a great location. And, and, and this is a whole run in mm -hmm. that regard from everything I've, I've heard right. and seen. Um, there's really a lot of excitement. So it sounds like. No, no. Let's talk a little bit about the financial side of, of real estate yeah. transactions. Yeah, that's a great idea. Money is always the, the first thing that you look at. And in many ways, it drives everything. You have other stuff you want to try to achieve. And you got to understand, okay, to get there, you might need to spend uh, some money. But there's a, a few things you need to figure out up front. You know, the, uh, the, the landlord will, in most instances, will give you money to build out your space. You do need that architect to uh, to figure out generally what it's going to cost. The architect's going to not have the exact amount, but this, you need to know then what investment you're going to make. So if, if you're going to build out space that's going to cost $175 a square foot and a landlord's giving you $125 a square foot, you got to understand what that that differential, that $50, per, or $50 per square foot, uh, you know, what is that cost? How are you going to pay for it, uh, et cetera? So that's part of it. The other side of it that I, I run into... Uh, every time we look at space is your unamortized leasehold improvements. So, you know, let's say you build out your space 15 years ago and you did have to pay 50 bucks a square foot because of the difference between what the it cost, what the landlord gave you. Uh, that, that money goes on your books and you depreciate it over time based on what you purchased. You know, certain things are depreciable over a longer period of time than others. And uh, so when you, it's time to make this decision, one thing you got to weigh in is, okay, I, I have $425,000 of unamortized leasehold improvements at the end of my lease. Am I willing to write those off or is that part of the equation of uh, figuring out whether you want to move or stay? So it's something that people forget sometimes, but it's yeah. important. Wow. Yeah. That, and that that's the look under the hood that I, I, I don't get. So uh, thanks for sharing that. That's interesting. From the legal side, um, practitioners like myself, uh, I'll know, but but for the general listener, um, let's talk a little about a little bit about an SNDA, which is a subordination non-disturbance in a torment agreement that a tenant should ask the landlord to get from the landlord's mortgage lender. Want to? Uh... Well, uh, let's talk about a specific office yeah. situation that we had where it was really important. Uh, we were uh, building out space in a, in a location. And uh, we were submitting our monthly reimbursement request to the landlord. And it, suddenly we realized it had been 45 days since we had submitted the second reimbursement to the landlord and we hadn't gotten our payment yet. And the, the promise is per the lease that you know, we will be paid within 45 days. Of so submission. we would pay the contractor and then get reimbursed by the landlord. Uh, Actually, the, the way this one worked is that we submit for reimbursement, and then when they give us the money, we give okay. it to the got it, got general it. contractor. So it was a kind of a pass-through. Yeah. And uh, so suddenly, we weren't getting reimbursed. We had a, a general contractor that needed to pay uh, their subs and uh, subcontractors. And if they didn't pay them, they, they would likely file a lien on the, the construction. And uh, so I called the, uh, uh, the, the landlord and said, you can ask him what's going on. And it turns out, that they were having trouble with their lender. They weren't meeting some of their requirements of their loan and that they were being foreclosed upon and were not allowed to make those payments. We did have, at your insistence, uh, the a, an SNDA that was in effect. And it took some time to work through the process uh, of the lender taking over the building. And this is a you know, 45-story building in downtown uh, Los Angeles. Uh, 
that uh, uh, that once it was all all the everything was taken care of, they did pay us the significant amount of money that was owed to us by uh, the landlord per our arrangement. And uh, so it was important to get it, especially in the world that we're in today, where there's some uncertainty about commercial real estate. Getting that SNDA signed is is important. It should be a requirement of any lease document. That, that, that's so lease true. Document. Yeah, and, and that's like the point where the people, are, the deal's almost done. The lease is negotiated, but we're still waiting for the lender on the SNDA, and, and the brokers get frustrated and say, "Well, do we really need it?" That's where the lawyers have to do their job and say, "Yes." Uh, and what it yeah. is is the lender is signing an agreement with the tenant, saying if we take the property back, whether it's foreclosure or deed in lieu of foreclosure or just uh, mortgagee in possession, where they take control of the property, um, that they'll honor the critical terms of the lease. For example, the funding that was construction through the allowance. That was um, so, so that's great. Um, good story, and thanks for sharing that. Well, that's it for us today. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for joining us and. Thanking Paul for sitting down with me. Again, my name is Bob Linton, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Deals and Developments.